Hi everyone, hope you're all really well. It's great to be preaching this week uh, and as you all know we're currently working through a sermon series looking at the great I am statements of Jesus in the Bible uh, and this week we're looking at a pretty amazing story. Over the last month or so I've been re-watching and re-reading a different amazing story, the Harry Potter series. And if you're familiar with the books You'll know that in the first one, the characters are on a sort of quest to find the Philosopher's Stone, a magical item that grants its owner eternal life. Its creator, Nicholas Flamel, was said to be 665 years old. But in the story, without giving too much away, it is decided that the stone is too dangerous and to be destroyed. And Harry, he's only 11, He's incredulous. Won't Flamel die? And while Dumbledore, with that famous twinkle in his eyes, says, yes, of course he will die. But to the well-organised mind, death is but the next great adventure. Nice sentiments. And probably appropriate for a kid's book. But is it true? In the story today, we're also going to be looking pretty closely at the subject of death because it is here where Jesus raises a man back to life, teaching as he does so things about life, about death, about us, and most importantly, about himself. The story begins in chapter 11 of the book of John. Do make sure you have your Bibles open and follow along. Uh, and we're introduced at the start of chapter 11 uh, to the central characters, to Mary, to Martha, Lazarus. And the scene is set as Jesus finds out that Lazarus is ill in verse 6 and decides to head over there in verse 7. Now, we're not going to focus at all on, on verses 8 to 16 uh, as Jesus travels to Bethany and, and teaches his disciples some things along the way. Instead, we'll focus upon Jesus' arrival in Bethany in verse 17, where he finds that Lazarus has now been dead for four days. In particular, we're going to try and understand the I am of this passage, which occurs in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. And to do that, we need to understand some of the context of the conversations that are taking place between Jesus and with Mary and with Martha. And the first thing you'll notice if you're an observant reader and listener is that Martha and Mary, upon meeting Jesus in these tragic circumstances, they both say exactly the same words. Look with me at Martha's words in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then cast your eyes down to Mary's first words in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Not just similar, but identical. And it's no accident that John, as he records this event, draws attention to Mary and Martha's identical phrases. 
And so what we're going to do today, very simply, is we're going to draw out three things from the sisters' words and then see three aspects of the way Jesus responds to them. And ultimately, we're going to learn what Jesus means when he describes himself as the resurrection and the life. Does that make sense? I hope so. So so let's dive in to the sisters' words. When terrible suffering takes place, human beings most often do two things. They desperately grieve and they earnestly seek answers. We can all relate to that experience and the sisters here are are no different. Their grief is painfully evident in verse 35 as Mary's response is one of utter sorrow and weeping. And their first words to Jesus also hold within them this desperate desire to gain understanding, even coming close to accusing Jesus, saying, if you had been here, is not too far from saying, why weren't you here? And it's the most natural of responses, isn't it? Our first response to suffering is almost always, why, oh God, why? Why didn't Jesus come quicker? Why did he wait for two days before coming to Bethany in verse 6? How could he have let this happen to one whom he loves? Where is God? The sister's response is, in the first instance, one of confusing grief. However, we mustn't be too harsh on on the sisters here, for for mixed in with their grief is, undoubtedly, a, a genuine faith. It's worth considering what they actually say. Because they acknowledge that had Jesus been here, Lazarus would indeed still be alive. We could read that cynically in an accusatory tone, but we could also read that as a strong belief in Jesus' power over sickness and health. Martha and Mary, they knew of Jesus' miracles and they both have the firm belief that Jesus can heal people of their physical sickness. Not only that, but Martha, with no hint of accusation at all, she confirms her belief that Jesus is the Messiah. This, is, this word is an Old Testament word, meaning anointed one. The one whom God has chosen and sent to save and deliver his people. Martha is not accusing Jesus, but confirming her belief that Jesus is Lord and saviour. This is a genuine faith. This dynamic should, I think, be an encouragement to us. It is often the mark of our Christian journeys that we experience a mixture of genuine faith and confusing grief at the same time. We believe in God and we believe in his goodness, yes we do, But we're also often at a loss to know what he's doing and why certain things are happening. The Christian journey is, in some ways, characterised by this mixture. 
Not only that, though, the Christian journey also includes an element of misguided belief. We do believe, but we are slow, and we don't always understand, just like Martha here. Jesus' first response to her in verse 23 is that Lazarus will rise again. And it's a, it's a multi-layered response, but Martha simply interprets this as a kind word of comfort. That Jesus is pointing out that there is life after death. And she's quite right, of course. But it's worth noting that at no point does it enter her realm of possibility that Jesus might have turned up to bodily raise Lazarus there and then. She does, in verse 22, show a belief that if Jesus asks God, something miraculous might happen. But the idea that Jesus could just walk into the tomb and command Lazarus to get up solely by the power of his words is simply inconceivable. Dead people do not rise again. There are many things that we can control in this world and many things, including death, that we can successfully delay. But no one has ever succeeded in defeating death. From the greatest of kings to the smallest of slaves, we all die. And Martha here, while she believes in Jesus' immense power to heal, and she does believe in some sort of spiritual life after death, she simply cannot conceive of this man before her actually raising someone to life. Even when Jesus commands the stone to be moved, Martha pipes up in verse 39 with, Are you sure, Jesus? It's really going to smell. Martha does have faith, but it's a limited faith. It's not in her frame of reference that Lazarus could just get up and walk out. It's a faith that hasn't quite joined up all the dots of who Jesus is really claiming to be. It's a misguided belief. Once again, I think there's great encouragement here. We too are people that have faith, but we get confused and we don't understand and our belief can sometimes be misguided. And as we now turn to consider three elements of Jesus' response to Martha and to Mary, one of the most wonderful things about this passage is that Jesus doesn't condemn and he doesn't criticise. He doesn't react badly to their questioning and confusion and nor does he angrily confront their misguided belief. Instead, he enters into their grief, quietly commends their faith, and gently corrects their misunderstandings. And so we'll take those three points in that order. In this chapter, John is at great pains to show how this particular miracle is personal for Jesus. In verse 3, we learn that Lazarus is a man whom Jesus loves, a close friend. And then John emphasises this in his own voice in verse 5. Jesus loved these 
people. They're not strangers. And as Jesus sees Mary and responds to her words and witnesses her tears, John tells us that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And we then get what is the shortest verse in all of scripture, also in some ways the longest. Jesus wept. I would love to preach ten sermons on just those two words, but but I won't. (laughs) Instead, let me point out that Jesus is actually experiencing grief here. Jesus became a human being and entered into this real world of pain, loss and sadness. Our God is not separate from it and Jesus' grief for his close friend is genuine and real. He enters into their grief. Significantly, Jesus weeps even when he knows that there's a solution. Our grief it is so dark and it's so lonely and it's so desolate because there's no solution. There's no cure for death. Tears in the face of death are tears of helplessness. And yet Jesus has known since verse 11 that he's going to wake Lazarus. And he weeps along with these sisters, even though he's got the solution to their tears. What this shows is that Jesus validates grieving. Grief is okay. Human beings were not made to suffer and to die. And it is right that we should grieve, not without hope, but with genuine sadness. Jesus validates our suffering acknowledges that the genuine pain of death and himself enters into our grief. Secondly, very briefly, Jesus commends the sister's faith. He does this really by not condemning. Jesus is, in this passage, far from accusatory or angry. Instead, he is patient, compassionate and kind to these grieving sisters. And the proof that Jesus does commend their slightly misguided faith is that he does indeed perform the miracle. That's not to say that all of our faith will be met with a miracle, but that in this particular instance, Jesus chose to bless the sisters' trust in him by restoring Lazarus to life. How good it is to worship a saviour who enters into our suffering and who walks patiently with us as we, stumbling and uncertain at times, seek to follow him by faith. And we then get to the meat of this passage, the way in which Jesus gently corrects slightly false understandings of himself. Martha uh, speaks this phrase that we've been looking at, and Jesus' first response is somewhat enigmatic. It is true, as Martha says, that Lazarus will rise again on the last day, referring to the spiritual life after death in heaven when God restores the whole world. But it is also the case that Jesus is raising the bar for how Martha should perceive him. He is not just a miraculous healer, he is God himself with power over life 
and death. And Jesus does this, Jesus explains this with this great I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Let's spend some time uh, unpacking this statement now. First of all, it's very significant that Jesus doesn't say, I will perform a resurrection and I will raise Lazarus to life. Instead, he identifies himself with the resurrection and as the life. In essence, Jesus seems to be saying that yes, Lazarus will rise again on the last day and that's my doing. I am the resurrection. He's making an explicit link between rising on the last day to eternal life with God the Father and to himself and to his own work. But the question remains, what does he actually mean? This I am, I think, is a little bit less tangible than some of the others. We all know what bread is and we all know what gates do. But it's a bit more slippery to understand in what way Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Life in the Bible is more than breathing. When I was in school, I used to learn the acronym Mrs. Gren. Nutrition and respiration and so on. And that defines life. And it's how we can work out that a plant is alive because it moves and it reproduces, whereas a rock is clearly not. But the Bible has a fuller understanding and a deeper understanding of life. God is the creator of life, the one who breathed life into dust and formed Adam. And in this sense, God is life. And human life is found in relationship with the one who is life, worshipping the one who creates life. That was Adam's joy in the Garden of Eden, right? To walk with God in the cool of the day. Being alive is not simply breathing and moving, but it's loving and being loved by the creator of life, responding and relating to God in relationship. That's life, and it's life to the full, as John said in the previous chapter. And that's where resurrection comes in, because if that's life, then we're dead, right? Adam didn't continue with this beautiful picture of walking with God in the garden. No, he disobeyed God, rebelled against God, and chose to serve a different God himself. And as the sons and the daughters of Adam, well, that's us, we do the same. We don't have to look very far into this world to see that we're not actually walking very closely with God. In the famous Frank Sinatra song, That's Life, he he chooses to describe life as a bit of a mess, full of knocks and hardships, people who get their kicks stomping on other people's dreams. Life doesn't sound much fun, and Christians agree, but they can go even further because we know that it doesn't do to simply blame the world out there for being a bit rubbish. 
If we're honest with ourselves, it's a pretty short journey into our own hearts to find that we're the ones that are selfish, that are proud, that are unkind, that are sinful people. We are not walking closely with God, but have rebelled. And so if we're going to get back to life, we need a resurrection. Through our sin, we've been cut off from the one who is life, and we are dead, living in death, chasing after death, dead in our sins, as Paul puts it. And so we need to be raised from the dead. And here Jesus is saying that that's his job. We don't pick ourselves up and get back in the race, as Sinatra sings. Someone dead doesn't resurrect themselves. No, Jesus here is identifying himself as the one who raises the dead to life. He is life because he's God, the creator and the sustainer of life. And he is the resurrection because through him, those who are dead can become alive and enjoy a relationship with the Father. How does Jesus do this? A click of his fingers? A wave of a magic wand? The creation of a philosopher's stone? Of course not. No, Jesus was sinless. And he was therefore truly alive and in a glorious and joyous relationship with his father as Adam should have been and as we should be, and yet he died. Died a brutal, undeserved death on a Roman cross in our place. In doing so, Jesus became cut off from the Father, as we are, taking our deserved death upon his shoulders and enabling us to rise to new life, clothed in Jesus' goodness as he was resurrected on the third day, defeating death truly. Friends, this is why Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because he entered into death and defeated it for us. Death has no hold upon us, for we are in Christ. And as Jesus says, the one who believes in him will live. Yes, physical death still remains, but it's not the end. There is eternal life. Now, I don't know, as Martha responds to Jesus, whether she quite grasps the significance of what he's telling her. He is showing her, I am far more than a good teacher or an inspirational leader to follow. I am far more than a miracle worker or a healer. I know your deepest problem, Martha, which is not that Lazarus or you or that anyone else is getting sick, but that you are dead in your sins. And I have come to this world to die and to defeat death in order that you, Martha, Mary and Lazarus, will indeed rise on the last day and enjoy eternity with your father as you were created to do. I am the resurrection and the life. God the son who can deal with your impending death 
And let me show you once and for all that I have power. Power over life and death. You, Martha, you can comprehend me performing a miracle, but you cannot conceive of me actually raising the dead right here and right now. But let me show you. Let me prove to you who I really am and what I can really do. You are spiritually dead and one day you will physically die. But I have the power to raise you both physically and, most importantly, spiritually. Let me close this sermon by repeating Jesus' question to Martha at the end of verse 26. Do you believe this? Friends, we've got to make a choice about Jesus. And as we look at these I am's, we are seeing time and time and time again that Jesus is claiming to be God himself. God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, with power to create, sustain, guide, lead, convict, and ultimately with the power to defeat death once and for all, and to enable us to enjoy life, life to the full, with the Father. Do you believe this? Do not settle for a second-rate Jesus, an inspirational teacher or a powerful miracle worker. That is an insult. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And death is not, as Dumbledore quips, the next great adventure. And we should never trivialise it as such. Death is the wages of sin, a cutting off from God, the one who is life. And the only way back is trust in Jesus Christ and in his saving death, his sacrifice for us on the cross. If you do not believe this, I urge you, do so now. And if you are a Christian, if like Martha, you say, yes, Lord, yes, I do believe. But you know that your belief is mixed up in your life with confusion and doubt and grief and suffering. Be encouraged. We believe in a gracious God, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who is compassionate and full of grace, a God who is patient where we stumble kind where, we're mis- are mis- where our faith is misguided, and ultimately a God who enters into our grief in the profoundest of ways. What a God we worship. Trust in him today, whatever the season of your walk. Amen.